Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Welcome to The Bridge. My name is Jason, and today with us, we have a special guest. For the second time, Mark Levine is a professor of sociology at Minzu University, who also teaches public speaking courses and judges competitions across China. Additionally, he's a bridge builder whose kind demeanor, published books, and second life as a folk singer has elevated Sino-American cultural understanding. Often interviewed by the media, Mark joins us on the bridge again today to talk about his life and work in China. Welcome back to the bridge, Professor Mark Levine. Well, I'd like to hire you to do introductions <laughs> for me whenever I go somewhere. Like I get a trumpet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a court jester job or something. <laughs> oh, please. Okay. Well, happy to be here. Glad to be a repeater. Yeah, we're really happy to have you back and to talk about what you've been doing lately. You know, you've just actually become a full professor, but you've been teaching here for at this university for more than a decade. Is that right? Yeah, not actually a full professor. I was a foreign expert before. Mm. So now I'm a professor. Technically, I'm a visiting professor, but I'm a professor. Well, I want to give the context that there are China just invited 50,000 Americans to come to China over the next five years yep. to study at universities here in China. And you are a professor, an American professor in China. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what is it like teaching here and uh, you're about your personal choice in choosing this kind of work. Okay. First of all, I don't teach Americans. <laughs> I don't teach <laughs> foreigners of any type. I teach Chinese students, mm. Chinese university students. And a lot of my students are from Chinese ethnic minorities mm. because of the university where I teach, Zhongyang Minzu Lashui, Minzu University of China. Mm. So that's an extraordinary experience because through that, I get to learn not just about a single Chinese culture, mm. but the great diversity of Chinese cultures. Mm. And I see one of the things that I'm f frequently asked is what kind of changes have I seen among students mm -hmm. in China? And I remember years back, I can't remember what year was the iPhone first introduced? Oh my goodness. I have 13, no idea. maybe Some, 10 years yeah. ago or something. And I remember if a student would see that, they'd look at the back and they'd say designed in California, assembled in China, and they'd kind of be, well, when is this going to be designed in China? <laughs> and nobody asked that anymore. Right. And now I see a substantial significant increase in the pride that Chinese students have of their country, well-deserved pride, which carries over to them as individuals because now they have an increase in personal pride mm. and of being a Chinese person and the education that they're getting and working very hard and seeing the changes that have gone on over the years. So that's a very interesting thing to see that particular transformation. Mm. I'd like to add a follow-up question because we're going to hopefully be seeing 10,000 American students come to Chinese universities next well, year. Well, you know what? Go I'm ahead. not sure that that was universities completely. Oh, I see. What I saw was teenagers. Well, which teenage, might university students are teenagers. It could include teenagers, but it could include high school students. I know, oh. I know families where they're high school age students 
have gone abroad to study in the United States. Well, that would be amazing. Often with staying with guest families, mm -hmm. host families, where they are the guest. I've known some who've done that and then come back for education at the university level in China. I know some who've gone abroad in high school, and then they've continued university education in the United States. Mm -hmm. So I'm not clear, but I think it'll possibly be a mixture of students at different levels. Well, my question, I guess, is for, you know, you're obviously you spent decades and decades in America. What should students of whatever age expect when they come to China that maybe they should be prepared for? I always tell, well, not so much students because I don't have a lot of contact with the students who are coming here until they've gotten here. Yeah. And But even with colleagues or other new faculty members who come, if they haven't been in China before and they're now coming to teach at a Chinese university, the number one thing I tell them is expect the unexpected. <laughs> sure, yeah, that's good and, advice. And uh, that's number one point of advice. Number two point of advice is forget about whatever you think you know of China and allow China to speak for itself. Mm. And if you do that, you will have a wonderful time. You will learn a lot. You'll have some extraordinary experiences. And if you don't do that and you hold on to whatever preconceptions you have brought from your country, especially if it's a Western U.S., Canada, so on, then mm -hmm. you're going to have a less enjoyable time mm. because you're going to interpret everything through that lens mm -hmm. of what you think you know about China. Wow. And um, so that's my common caution. When I meet a lot of people who come from other countries, from Russia, from Pakistan, from India, from Southeast Asia, from many other countries, it's kind of interesting in many instances because what they come to China knowing is really a much more positive outlook <laughs> about China than we are taught yeah. in the U.S. And I've heard I was on one trip to a place called Shibaipo in Hebei province. Mm -hmm. Shibaipo is an important place because it was the last place that the Communist Party was based before they came to Beijing, mm. before they came. And I was with a, a group of foreign experts from Beijing and Hebei province and Tianjin. And there were like 20, 22 of us. I was the only American. There was one person from Britain. There was one person from Australia. And there were several Pakistanis and several Russians and one person from Mexico and somebody from India and various things. And they were talking about, it was wonderful to see. I had heard such great things about Mao Zedong and when I was growing up in school. And I started thinking, wow, that <laughs> yeah. must have been a really fascinating <laughs> educational system. And uh, I said, because that's not what we were taught. <laughs> so particularly for those who are coming from what is known as the Western world mm. or the uh, Anglophone world mm. or the Francophone world, I think our background on China is a lot different than many countries in mm -hmm. the world. Well, you travel a lot to go and judge speaking competitions around China. Is that right? And uh, what does this entail? Let me expand that a yeah, little bit. Please do. I've traveled, I've been in 31 provinces. Mm. I didn't know there were 31 provinces. Yeah, there's a few more <laughs> a I haven't been to. And I've been some many, many, many times. Mm -hmm. And I've gone to judge speaking competitions. I've given lectures at almost 70 universities wow. all over China. Some, again, many times. As you know, I'm a singer-songwriter, and I've performed mm -hmm. in 17 provinces, mm -hmm. uh, some several times. 
So some of my travels is related to that. Mm-hmm. I've been invited on a few government trips with, of foreign experts mm-hmm. and haven't done a lot of tourism. But it sounds usually, like you've done everything a tourist would want to do. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's actually better. But usually I get, well, it depends. Sometimes I get to do some touring and sometimes I'm at a university campus or I'm there and I, but I get to meet people, mm-hmm. which is ultimately, I'm often asked by media, very common question, which you haven't asked me is when you travel, what is it that captures your attention? What's mm-hmm. most important to you? And I say, well, I've eaten delicious food mm-hmm. and I've seen beautiful history and I've learned a lot about and seen beautiful environment. Um, I've learned a lot about history and culture, but the most important thing wherever I go is the people I get to meet mm-hmm. because everywhere I go, they are welcoming and friendly. Mm-hmm. But um, so those are the bases of my travels and it gives me, you know, I have 9,000 WeChat contacts on my phone. Really? 9,000? 9,000. And a lot of them are not in Beijing. (laughs) They're from every place that I've met people. Wow. You know, one of the things I do is I go to museums a lot in other provinces. So I love to learn about each time I go to a new province, I learn a little bit of more Chinese history. Yeah. Because every Chinese city has its claim to fame at some point or points in Chinese history. So it's always a lot of fun. Well, it's not just claim to fame in terms of history, but I was just in Guangdong province for the World Media Summit. And it was media from a hundred countries around the world, but there was also local Guangzhou media. Mm. And they came up and they said, you know, Guangdong province is the center of technology. <laughs> the center of tech. So it's not just the history, it's what's going on. So today. Shenzhen, the Greater Bay Area. Uh, greater Bay Area, the whole Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and so on. And I said, well, I don't know a lot about that, but I do know that I have a Huawei phone and a Huawei <laughs> tablet. So I know that those are from Shenzhen. Mm. So I have a Xiaomi right now, but my wife is finally going to let me update to the Huawei Mate Pro 60, which is the one with the 7nm microchip that came out. Oh, yes. I'm thinking about that. I'm trying to figure out what is so special about it. I think it's eventually I can see it being in a museum because it, it really represented a time when China was like, we can innovate. Yeah. And they did it in such a short period of time. Yeah. So I think it's remarkable. I'm excited to get one. You live in Beijing, though, and you've I've lived in Beijing, lived. what, 90 percent of the time you've been, right? No, I've lived here the entire time I've been in Beijing. I moved into the apartment where we are sitting right now on July the 6th of 2000 and seven. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Five years before I even came to You can see when I came, I had a very limited supply of things. And now it's kind of a museum. You got a hat collection. Quite a hat collection. Yeah. These are uh, mostly recent acquisitions. Mm. This is uh, Tajik. Mm -hmm. So I'm Tajik woman. That's these two up there are Kyrgyz. Mm. Uh, This is a Bai hat. This is Uyghur. That's actually not Chinese. Well, actually it could be a Chinese one. Turkmen. Well, I mean, Mike. Mongolian and Wei. And there is, of course, a Yamal. <laughs> I have a question. Why have you chosen Beijing as your base for, you know, living here in China? There are a lot of other beautiful cities. No, no. What stands out to you about Number Beijing? one, I came here. This is my home because of the university that I teach at. Mm. Right. I, you haven't ever considered a different universe? Not exactly, no, because it's very special because of the Chinese ethnic minorities. Mm. It's literally my home in terms of where I've worked mm. ever since I came to Beijing. It's my home in terms of where I live. You know, I have a friend 
from lives in this building is a graduate student from Somalia, and he's extraordinarily active in all kinds of activities. And he goes over to the, I live in the west side of Beijing in Haiyan. He lives on the east side. He gets involved with lots of different activities. And someone says, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm a graduate student at Minzu University of China. And he comes back and says, and they said, oh, Mark's University. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it's known. All right. I've had um, some of my students who refer to, they say, Min, uh, you are the Mingpian, the business card of Minzu University of China. <laughs> so I'm very well known through my connection to this university. You know, we've done lots of, I've done hundreds of media interviews, video, websites, podcast, not too many podcasts, and uh, printed things online, newspaper, and I always talk about the school, so mm -hmm. I'm known for that. And then the other thing is I like Beijing. Mm -hmm. I like, I grew up in Los Angeles in the 50s and the 60s, mm -hmm. and in many ways, Beijing reminds me of Los Angeles. <laughs> no, because you got the mountains yeah. on the periphery, which is very nice. Yeah. And we had a lot of traffic. <laughs> and we had a lot of sometimes the day the air is not so clear, mm. but that's okay. I mean, some day many days it's so much more beautiful than it was 10 years ago sure, in Beijing. Yeah. It's really nice. But every once in a while we have problems with that. But Beijing is similar to Los Angeles at that time because there were people from all over the country and all over the world who came here to live their dreams. Mm, mm. And that's what we have in Beijing. Yeah, it's almost challenging to find real legitimate Beijingers sometimes in Beijing yeah. because everyone's from somewhere else. Yeah. But let me add one more thing. There's several, I've liked almost every place I've gone, right? And three places I've been to many times and mm -hmm. I like very much. One is Nanjing, mm -hmm. another is Guangzhou, mm -hmm. and the third is Changsha. Mm. All right. And however, well, actually, this last trip to Guangzhou was, I was focused on this conference. But apart from that, I remember the last times I was ever at those three cities. Mm. And suddenly I had this very unusual feeling. Mm -hmm. Now, these are pretty big cities. Yeah. And the feeling I had was things are kind of slow here. Oh, yeah. I got to get back to Beijing because nothing is slow. I felt the opposite way. I went, I moved to Wuhan a couple of years ago. Yeah. I lived there for one year and I came back for work and I miss how slow <laughs> it is. You walk down the street, people are not in a hurry. You know, people oh, no, are just no, like no, doing no. whatever. You order some food, maybe it comes soon, maybe not. No, in no, Beijing, no. everything's go, 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 uh, go, go, go. This was LA. Yeah. This was LA. <laughs> and this, I really like, I need that. Wow. I like that. Okay. I'm the opposite. Uh, a it gives bit. me the. It gives me. Uh, you know, and I live in Haidian, but I. You know, I go to Daxing, I go to Chongping, I go to Chaoyang, I go to other districts mm -hmm. because there are a lot of activities yeah. happening, and so I'm interested in participating in those things and learning from them, and again meeting people through them. And things are really coming alive again lately. I went on to the Beijing website to see you know what events are coming yeah. up, and I found maybe 100 things related to just Christmas happening in the next oh, yeah. few weeks. Yeah. So yeah, Beijing is just, there's so much to do. You couldn't possibly do it yeah. all because it's so, happening simultaneously. Yeah. So that's why, that's the other aspect. It's not just my school, but I really like Beijing. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge.
another piece of context, the anniversary, I'm not sure which one, of Sino-US diplomatic relations is coming up January 1st. And yep. so you're an American, you've been living here in China. Do you visit the US? And if and when you do, what's that experience like? The last time I went was 2011. Wow, really? I've only been back. I went in, I got, arrived in China in 2005. I wasn't living in Beijing yet, and I went home for 3 weeks both time. My birthday is in February, you mm. may remember that. Mm -hmm. And uh so in 2006 and 2011, I was back for about three weeks at the mm. time of my birthday. And various times I've been thinking about going back because I have a son mm. and a grandson and daughter-in-law there and actually a sister. Do they come out family. here? They've, my son's been here three times, wow. my daughter-in-law twice and my grandson once. Mm. But what's happened is in the 18 plus years since I've lived in China, I've only been out of China for probably about 70 days. Wow. Well, because there's just so much to do. <laughs> so much. So I was thinking about going in the beginning of 2020. Mm -hmm. And I, in November of 2019, I signed a contract for my second book called Singing My China Stories to the World. Mm -hmm. And that was in November. And as soon as I signed the contract, I said, oh, I can't go to the United States. I have to stay here. I have to finish this book. Right. I won't finish it. Now, you know what happened? We know what happened in 2020 when I was going to be going. And when that happened, I said, oh, I'm so lucky that I didn't go. Mm. All right. As you know, with a green card, I could have come back just like a Chinese citizen, but flights weren't happening. Right, yeah. And the ones that were, were very expensive. They're still very expensive. Mm. And so, and I actually didn't, I don't know, how much you are familiar with this, but we went, you know, for much of three years, we were teaching online. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if I was teaching from Los Angeles, my classes were all based on a Beijing schedule. Right. So if I had a class at four in the afternoon in Beijing, it would have been one in the morning. <laughs> so you'd be in living Los upside Angeles. down. And I would not have been happy teaching <laughs> at one in the morning. So I got to teach even the, periodically we went back into a classroom. But even if we were online, I at least got to teach on a much more regular schedule mm. and so on. And I actually wasn't able to finish the book until July, mm -hmm. even though there wasn't a great deal to do because <laughs> I was so, I had never taught online before. Mm. I had to learn the technology. I had to learn what can I do? What can I not do? What's going to work? So my focus was really intensively on the classes and so mm. on. I finally finished it in July. And uh, the last point was a conclusion and an introduction. And I have been thinking about the introduction, thinking about it. And then suddenly I realized I got to talk about COVID because this whole book that I've written, there's nothing about COVID. Mm. All right. So I included that in my introduction mm. and it fit perfectly. It was just the right thing to do. So I was going to get it in. But anyway, in and my son has told me that he had actually been planning to come. He and his family during the summertime of 2020. Mm. And then and so that stopped both of us. Wow. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. 
you know, basically I'm really busy. Yeah, I know you're really I'm busy. Really and it's busy. difficult. And, even and it's amazing how much days. you can fit into your schedule given how busy you are. Because I'm constantly, you're telling me I'm doing this and then two hours later I'm doing this and then three hours later I'm doing this. <laughs> Sorry to bother you. <laughs> I have to honestly say, you know, me personally, I try to arrange one thing a day and oh, that's no, no. it. So if there's something happening in the morning, the afternoon, I'm making no. a choice. <laughs> See, this, is, this is my schedule book. Oh my goodness. This is my schedule book and everything gets written in it. Mm. And if somebody comes along and you say, hey, you got time for an interview? I got to look at that book. And <laughs> sometimes it's forget it. And sometimes I'll say, well, if I move this from there. Wow. But I never say yes until I figure out one, what do I have? And two, if I something is time loaded and needs to be done at a particular time right. and I really want to do it, then I have to figure out where can I move the thing I was going to do. And if I can't figure that out and I do that before, I say yes. Well, it's very admirable that you're able to say, I have another question. Yeah. So I was rereading your book, especially the second half. Um, okay. Great. And you're singing my China stories to the world published in 2021. You wrote, and I love uh, the grapes of wrath because it's about my grandparents. They all survived the Dust Bowl and moved to okay. California. You had a quote, if you're in trouble or hurt uh, or need, go to the poor people. They're the yeah. only ones that'll help the only ones. So in your book, you talk about how China is helping a lot of other developing countries yeah. in South-South development. Yeah. Develop. Yeah. In what way is China specially placed to be of assistance to other developing countries? Oh, perfect. Oh, I better not say it. I hate when in interviewees say, that's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. They do it all the time. And I suddenly I catch myself. Okay. <laughs> so let's see what we have here. My first introduction to China was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old. I have a five-year sister who's five years younger. Mm -hmm. And when we were served something to eat that we didn't like, the response of my mother was always, children in China are starving. Mm. You have to eat that. Mm. Obviously, I wasn't bright enough to figure out how that was going to help Chinese <laughs> children who were starving. But I figured, okay, I better do what my mother tells me. When I was writing the book, I was thinking about this. Mm -hmm. And I have been out in the countryside, been to all kinds of places. Right? China eliminated absolute poverty. Mm -hmm. Poverty still exists, mm -hmm. right? There are people who are not, who are still very poor and mm -hmm. communities are still very poor. And China is working on that. And so I was thinking of that contrast. And then that made me think of, uh, you haven't met my music partner and agent, Fu Han. She's I have been not. in the United States. It's almost four years. And I hope she's coming back at some point. She said next year. Mm. All right. But her parents live on a farm in southern Hubei province. Mm -hmm. And uh, her father used to talk about that situation. Mm. So we contacted and he said, yes, he had talked about how sometimes he would eat leaves, he'd eat dirt just to get something wow. to fill his stomach when he was young. He's a few years younger than me. Mm. And so we called him up and I asked, why did that happen? Mm -hmm. What was the problem? He says, well, you know, some people say, you know, this government decision was bad or this government decision was bad. He says, maybe there's some truth in that. He says, but the real problem was we didn't have friends. Mm. You need friends. And then, so we started looking at that and then China made friends. You know, there were the friends who were there, you know, mostly Eastern European countries at mm -hmm. that point. And they were poor. They were not in a good position. But then in 19 
1950s, Joe and Lai went to Africa mm -hmm. twice, mm -hmm. and he laid out the five principles of peaceful coexistence and how China was going to help African countries, mm -hmm. many in their struggles for independence and mm -hmm. so on, and China did. And years later, when China was trying to get into the People's Republic, was trying to get into the United Nations as mm -hmm. the official representative of China, right? More than uh, almost 30 African countries supported mm. China mm. in that effort. So this is friends. Mm. Later, China gets deals with reform and opening up and so on. And this is more friends. And then you have the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. And what's the Belt and Road Initiative? The Belt and Road Initiative is saying, we have to help. We are now in a position where we have advanced significantly beyond where we were before. Mm. Now it's our turn to help. Mm -hmm. Now it's our turn. We have to demonstrate that this is that just like we needed that help mm. other countries. And that this is not in the concept of the win-win is has to deal with the fact that while we can help other countries in terms of the building of infrastructure and the eradication of poverty, one of the basic ideas that China has is that as long as there is poverty, there will be conflict, mm. there will mm -hmm. be war. Mm -hmm. So that if we can help other countries develop their own economic system, and again, non-interference in right. their affairs, that what can then happen is we can then help to build a more peaceful world, which is better beneficial to us as well as to them. Mm -hmm. All right. So I think that's my understanding of why China, China kind of uh, considers, well, to a great degree, I think they consider it a responsibility mm -hmm. and we need to help others. I think that's overlooked in a lot of argumentation. A lot of people look at what selfish reasons China has for helping yeah. others. And there are good positive yeah. ones like stability and economic yeah. growth. But I also do think there is an, a moral element to what they're doing. Yeah. 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 There's another element. One of the things sometimes I talk about in some of the presentations I do, I talk about poverty alleviation work in China. Mm. And I use that as an example mm -hmm. because how did poverty alleviation take place? We had a couple of million Communist Party cadre who went out to poor areas and they would go and they assembled people and they'd say, okay, what do you need? Right. Not, we're not telling you what you need. Where do we start? What do you need to eradicate poverty? Mm -hmm. And that's the first step. And the second step is, what are we, you and us, going to do together to achieve that? Mm -hmm. And then the third thing they say is, we're here until that's done. <laughs> yeah. We're not leaving on the weekend and going home. We are here. We are committed. Okay. And I think these same principles hold true in terms of China and its relations with our countries. Mm. China is not coming in and saying, we're going to build this. You don't want it too bad. <laughs> right. We're going to build it. Sorry, Kenya, you have to accept this bridge. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> no, we insist you have a high-speed train. Yeah. Well, I was actually doing, I've been researching BRI projects, and some of it is free, not all of it, but there's yeah. there are projects that are Chinese aid. Yeah. And I was looking at Bangladesh. I have a map, an interactive map of BRI projects from the College of William Marriott States. Yeah. And it's, I noticed I could find Bangladesh China Friendship Bridge number five, six, seven, and eight. Yeah. For whatever reason, I was never able to find the other four, but you have to presume that there are four before that. <laughs> it's just the records that were kept don't go that back that long. Yeah. But it shows you how long and how invested China is. And certainly Bangladesh wasn't just a recipient of the bridge. Bangladesh probably approached China and said, hey, we have this place. We need a bridge. Could you help us out? And so, you know, 
Kenya, Namibia, Bangladesh, they initiate reaching out to China. Hey, we would really like this. Could you help us with that? Sometimes it's a 0% loan or 2% loan. And sometimes China provides grants for hospitals, schools, roads. And sometimes the loans are later waived. That's right. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I want to talk about, because you wrote this in the book, the Chinese dream. Now, usually Americans, we hear growing up the American dream, I guess, which is like a white picket fence and a dog and 2.3 children or something like that. Yeah. So what is the Chinese dream? Twofold. One is the fact that at one point in history, China played a very significant role in the world. Mm. And then, you know, what's um, then that was stopped largely by interference from outside of China. And China's part of the Chinese, the bigger Chinese dream is to, again, reestablish it as an important country in the world. Mm-hmm. All right, able to make significant contributions, able to provide for its own people. Mm-hmm. But the other half is you get some people who interpret it similarly to the American dream of, here's what's in it for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was really the primary point of its introduction of the concept by mm. President Xi. But I think through that, and I think many of the recent ideas coming from President Xi, particularly in terms of Chinese ethnic minorities, mm-hmm. is that so people have advanced, but there has to be a recognition that the advance took place because of the advance of China, mm-hmm. because of what China has been able to develop, right? That ethnic minorities, per, for example, want to protect their language, their customs, their rights and culture and so on. But fundamentally, that's only possible mm-hmm. if China is strong, China mm-hmm. and if China is united. Because if not, then what you have is everything gets broken up. And then you end up with internal conflict between this ethnic group and that ethnic group, as we see in many countries in the world, yeah. right? So you, as whatever cultural or ethnic group you are, are only able to achieve that through the positive developments in China and the cooperative interactions and relations with all of Chinese minorities. Mm. The American dream seems to be struggling a bit. Now, you don't live in the United no, States. No, I don't think it's struggling. It's been dying for a long time. <laughs> but actually, you know the George Carlin quote? I, which one? You know George Carlin? Oh, gosh, who doesn't? He's a philosopher as much as he was, was a comedian. The American dream, you have to be sleeping to believe <laughs> in the American dream. And he was saying this in the 1980s. Yes. Yeah. You have to be sleeping. Yep, that's right. 1980s. Well, I mean, I, the reason I bring this up is I over I was at a dinner with you or lunch with you, and there were several people there. But I overheard while I'm having a separate conversation, you talking to one of our friends. Yeah. And you were discussing the history of the U.S. people's struggle yeah. from FDR to about the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And I really wanted to be part of your conversation suddenly. Uh-huh. So I was hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit about the struggle of the American people during that time, because you could probably teach a history course from what I heard on it. Yeah, I've done that. Could you just tell us a few of the points from FDR forward? How did things start to break down? Okay, so we start with the basic idea that working people are always trying to improve their conditions. Mm -hmm. And the American dream deals with the idea of you can succeed. But the problem is you might become successful, but it will be at my expense. Mm. 
All right. And so what occurred was labor organizations, generally known as unions, began to develop. And then we have the Great Depression, okay, where mm -hmm. 25% of people are out of work. Mm -hmm. And there are labor struggles all around, and you have this increasingly growing unemployed population. And the unemployed population kind of, Karl Marx called them a surplus labor pool, mm. right? Mm. So if you refuse to work, hey, come on over here. I right. got a job for That's you. That's carpet bagging, right? No, no. Well, carpet bagging really goes back to days of reconstruction in the South where the Northerners came down to the South mm. to run for political office uh. and to make great wealth and so on. So we're going to eliminate slavery and I'm going to become rich mm. all right, and politically powerful. But uh, so anyway, so you have all of these strikes going on mm -hmm. and you have- and We're uh, talking about the 1930s 1930s. Now. And so you have first strikes and workers go out on strike. We're not going to work. And they'd set up picket lines mm -hmm. outside. And the problem with the picket lines was the police would come along. Oftentimes they were the private police, mm. all right, who were hired. Like the Pinkertons. By, yeah, who were hired by the uh, company owners and so on. And they'd come along and they'd beat people and mm. others would get arrested and so on. So next step in this process was called a sit-down strike. Mm. And the most successful one was in Flint, Michigan. The mm. Michael Moore movie talks about Flint mm. and how this was. Michael Moore explains this is when the middle class was born mm. because finally they won. And the first step in labor organizing is not we want more money because you say we want more money. And the response is, what do you mean we? I didn't hire a <laughs> we. I hired you and I hired her and I hired him. Right. So the first point is recognition by the employer that we are a unit mm. and you have to deal with us, not me. Mm. Okay. So, and that's what was gotten. And then people got, that's where the middle class was created because this group of people were now able to put forth certain demands and were able to get some positive response off mm. of that. Okay. Then what happens is, but in general, these were not successful. Mm. Next step in this progress was a general strike. Mm -hmm. General strike. Everybody goes out. All the workers go out. Mm. And what ended up happening was most of these were also not successful. There was one that was successful, and that took place in San Francisco. And it started with longshore workers, mm. the people that uh, load the boats. Mm. And then it went to warehouse workers, and then it went to taxi drivers, and it went and it just spread and spread and spread. And the rich people of San Francisco go out, they leave the city to wait until the revolution is over. Wow. Police go on strike. Wow. To join. So, and the, the papers, which were newspapers, which were printed outside of the city, were announcing crime wave to follow police on strike. Right. But there was no crime wave because special groups of workers put on armbands, mm. like people we see in the streets of Beijing. Right, yeah. I was thinking about when I retire in China, I'll get the armband. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have a friend who ha does that. Yeah, I think we know the same gentleman. Yes, Terry. Yeah, he was in the Global Times for that. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, and the crime rate went down. Mm. Went down, it didn't go up. So at this point- Well, there's point, no rich people to rob. <laughs> at, at this point, no, because it's, you know what it is? It's our city now. Right. Yeah. We have to protect This is it. our city. It's our city. So President Roosevelt is a little frightened about all this because he says, if this spreads around the country, then this really is the revolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And his goal in the Depression was to save capitalism. Mm. That was his objective. Mm -hmm. 
just like Abraham Lincoln's goal initially was not freeing slaves. Mm -hmm. It was keeping the United States together. Right. Okay. So he puts forth a law. He gets a law passed in Congress called the National Labor Relations Act. Mm. All right. And what this law says is, okay, workers are always trying to improve their conditions. Mm. And so they get together. They organize because they realize they can't do it by themselves. Mm. So then they form a union and they try to get the employers to negotiate with them. And the employers say, no way. And then they go out on strike. And mm. then all hell breaks out with the economy, gets in the way. So we need to prevent this from happening again. Right. So we, the government, are now going to join the sides of workers and we're going to help them organize. Mm -hmm. And this law specifies the government will assist you in forming a union. However, one, you have to be, a in order to join a union, you have to be a, an employee of an employer. It means you have to have a job. Mm -hmm. So at that time, 25% of right. American workers were out of work. So that excluded an awful lot of people. Right. Second, it doesn't apply if you're doing domestic work or agricultural work. And the U.S. was still largely an agricultural country. So farmers, people who worked for farm land. Workers, yeah. Farm workers can't yeah. do it. So, and another element that's added to this is a, a larger percentage of those people were African-Americans mm -hmm. or Mexicans or mm. from other South or Filipinos mm -hmm. and so on. So that actually excluded a lot of minorities from joining the unions. All right. Third thing, if you're an independent contractor, then you're not an employee. I think we still have this problem today. This is what we now call gig workers. Right. All right. But for a long time, they were known as independent contractors. Mm. So I got a little factory, small factory in Los Angeles making clothing, and you're sitting in a sewing machine and you start saying, Mark is a terrible boss. We need to have a union. And I find out about it and I come into work one day and say, great news. We're going to change how we operate here. When we leave today, I want you to take that sewing machine home with you. <laughs> it's your, you have to pay me a little bit a month. Wow. And then what will happen? You can make clothes. You can make them in the middle of the night if you want. You can work or you can take care of your kids in the morning, send them off to school, then work while they're at school, then come back, take time. You're free. You can work seven days a week. You can work three days a week and we will sign a contract and I will buy your clothes. Mm. Independent contract. You're like your own boss. Right. Right. Which therefore means you no longer have a union. You can't form a union. And this is what today all of these people who are known as gig workers, right? Gig mm -hmm. going back to the, hey, you playing anywhere? Yeah, I got a gig tonight. All right. Uh, so NPR's deal essentially was to divide the right. working class. Divide the working class. What ended up happening? Narrow who could. 70 million people were not allowed to form a union. And for those who were, which was a minority of the working population, they now had to follow rules right. about what a union could do or could do. So the new do. deal wasn't a deal that in the betterment of the workers, it was a deal. No. To... And in fact, many people opposed this law. Wow. We should do a whole okay. episode just on this. Subject. That's good. So this because... is where we start. This is a <laughs> yeah, that's, that is a lot of information. Wow. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Get 
guess we'll put two questions together. So I want to know what Americans can learn from their Chinese brothers and sisters, because I think that there's a lot of sensationalism in U.S. Yeah. media about what China's like. Okay. And maybe the idea of China that exists in American media and China are not the same place. Yeah. There's an imaginary China that seems to exist yeah. in U.S. discourse, and then there's real what China is actually like. So if we're talking to our American brothers and sisters who are actually the majority of our listeners for our show, what would you like to tell them about the reality of life in 2023 in China? Okay, not just the reality of life in China, but the real reality about China. I think the significant thing, sometimes, and again, U.S. media and U.S. politicians frame, we already talked about competition versus win-win. Uh, and part of that basis of competition is that here is the U.S. way or the Western way mm -hmm. or something, and here is the Chinese way and the choices between those two things. Mm -hmm. While China does offer a different way, the significance of what China does and says is there doesn't need to be only one way. Right. And in fact, there can be many ways. Mm -hmm. And that what China is doing is demonstrating the fact that several approaches to development are in fact possible. Mm -hmm. And if there can be two ways, there can be three ways. And if there can be three ways, there can be eight ways mm -hmm. and so on. And China doesn't say, again, non-interference with each other's interior affairs. Mm -hmm. China mm -hmm. doesn't say you need to be like us or else we're going to invade you. Right. China says, you need to be like you. Mm -hmm. All right. And we're not going to tell you what to do, but we are demonstrating the entire fact that there is not a single way to develop. Mm -hmm. All right. And that's the value in what China is presenting. Mm -hmm. Not that it's two possibilities. It's us or them. Mm -hmm. Right. It's them. It's our way. It's this way. It's that way. You figure it out and we will assist you. We will assist you in providing technical training. We will assist you in providing resources. Mm -hmm. All right. We will assist you in providing training so that you can do that. We will assist you in terms of making technology available for your use, mm -hmm. for you to do that. But you have a history, you have a culture, you have customs, mm -hmm. right? And we need to respect each other. Yeah. And that means we need to respect you and you need to respect us. Well, can we can ask do that? a yeah. framing question about your answer, because my question was, what's life like about in China understand. and your answer? So what you're trying to teach our American listeners is that the American habit of going to foreign nations <laughs> and telling them, no, you need to be more like us is yeah. something that they should learn from China. Oh, China says we'll cooperate with you, but doesn't tell them what to do. And Americans need to learn the habit of yes. non-interference in yeah, the affairs of other countries. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> that's a nice way, but that's a correct way. That's what I mean. Yeah. Well, that would be very useful, actually. I think yeah. that's actually a very good lesson. I, I hope think, Americans yeah, do Yeah, I learn. think that's lesson number one. Lesson number two, again, for those who come, and I am a big advocate, that this whole idea of uh, the 10,000 students a year coming, the fact that you know, I went this conference, mm -hmm. it was media people and right. they were there and they're asking, you know, I gave this speech, it was a 10 minute talk and it was talking about China as person oriented or people oriented development mm -hmm. rather than, you know, they released this book call about humanomics and humanomics being this concept that President Xi has introduced that starts with development, starts with 
people, culture, then economics. Mm. Rather than how we do it is economics first. Right. Economics Supply side first. economics. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, and so that's what my presentation was talking about. And I talked about what I had seen in Xinjiang and how this is what was going on there, what I'd seen in other places where I'd been, poverty alleviations. And you always saw the first was how do we improve the lives of people? Mm. And so I've been advocating for a very long time. I was so, when I heard about the Americans, I said, great. My university has a bunch of foreign students, mm. Russia, Vietnam, Philippines, Thailand, Kazakhstan, Central Asia, mm. Pakistan, East Asia, Southwest Asia, Africa. So pretty much everyone. <laughs> but not many. We have three people from the United States, two of whom are Chinese, okay, who Chinese were born Americans. in China and became U.S. citizens. Well, I have a follow-up question. Well, let me just okay, finish sure. this thought. So I've regularly been asked in various conferences, including sometimes with the government, sometimes with the media, what needs to be done to improve relations between mm -hmm. the United States and China. And a lot of times people are dealing with, well, we need to write more articles. And I'm saying, not a bad idea, but you have to understand. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. And what needs to be done is we need people to come and see. Right. We need people to see with Seeing their own believing. eyes. And then they can go back home and they say, you know what? That's not what I saw. Right. It looks different. Mm. And this was, in my respect, a lot of people died in COVID, but I think this was one of the most serious consequences of COVID mm. is the lack of the face-to-face -face interaction right. with people, the lack of ability of people to be able to say, I went there. Yeah. That's what I saw with my own eyes. Mm. Before the 50,000 students was announced, just yeah. prior to the uh, Xi Jinping's visit to San Francisco, yeah. people could already come to Chinese universities. So I wanted to ask you, you have obviously one, you have three Americans attending Minzu University. Yeah, but two of them have family here. <laughs> right, yeah. So they still have ties and connections. So they have a different understanding. All right, let me tell you. My, my question is, can Americans apply to directly to Minzu University without going through any kind of program with their university back at home or through the State Department? Or, or I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know what their university at home will require. What I do know is that what will happen is if and when the government realizes they're coming, then they're going to get the announcement, a special email of the announcement from the State Department saying, we understand you are going to China. Wow. Beware of this. Beware of that. Beware of that. I had a an American professor from the University of California at Santa Cruz who came here, a music professor, came here for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And before he came, he'd already planned to come. And he sent a copy of the State Department memo that was sent out by the some department of the International Department of the University of California, the entire system. And wow. it said, don't bring your computer. What? Don't bring your phones. All right. All kinds of things. Be careful. You might be accused of espionage. Oh, my goodness. And this guy sent this. He says, what is this? <laughs> and he came. And he had a great time. And he said, this is crazy. Yeah. And he went back. He says, I'm going to encourage my students to come. Wow. I got a list of 10 students I think should come here. Right. But That's this is, and sometimes it frightens people because a lot of people, or it frightens them 
or young people, maybe they're frightened or maybe they're kind of eager to find out, but it frightens their parents. Right. You know, that's really perturbing. One thing I'd like to add, the State Department is notoriously bad at understanding China. So they, you would think it would be in their interest to have more people come over to China and understand it better. You know what? I told you today, they said you can't bring your cell phone. Wow. There's no place to put your cell phone. And I got there and they said, do you have a cell phone? We'll put it here. <laughs> and I didn't bring it. Right. They said, we have no change to give you. So you must bring exact money. I brought ex what I thought was exact money. The price was a little higher. I had to give them more. And then they gave me change. Yeah. But so the US several things. Yeah. Well, I want to attack the State Department too hard. <laughs> but, you know, for those people who are listening and considering coming to China, please ignore most of what's in that message. It's it's life here is, you know, I would say it's safer on because the criminal street element is not does no, not no, exist no. practically at all. So I feel a lot safer here than I would feel a lot. I a have lot never I've I've been, uh, you know, all over the country and I have never oftentimes I was in situations or places in the United States where I might be a little worried about am I going to be safe here? I've never had that feeling in China. Never. I have one last question. Okay. Because we're going to record you making a song after this. Where can people find your music? So I'm an American. I'm a Canadian. I'm a Chinese person. I want to listen to Mark Levine's folk music. <sighs> Where can I go to find it? Okay. Which hat am I wearing? Okay. <laughs> Baidu, Yoku. Baidu and Yoku. Baidu, Yoku, QQ. No, better to type in Maka Li Wen. So, you got to put that in your podcast yeah, notes, we'll put it in, in the web notes. You might be able to find it on Mark Levine. But Mark Levine is a, a much more common name in the US. If you go into Google and type in Mark Levine, the, first, China Mark the, Levine? the first person you're going to get is a jazz musician, pianist. Uh, who wrote a book about jazz piano theory, very well known in the jazz field. Second person you're going to find might be a young professor of Middle Eastern history who's at the University of California at Irvine. Third person, there's a guy who's actually spelled Mark Levin, who is a right-wing news commentator. <laughs> but there's so there's a lot of people. So if they type in, I personally know met five Yoku, Yoku, and type in Mark Levine, then they probably find that. Probably yeah. will find you. Yeah. All right, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Not lie there. The unity that surrounds.